0: Turn please to Matthew chapter 12 in your Bible. And we're going to read the last few verses of this chapter. We are just looking at snapshots of Jesus and we're trying to get a glimpse of him in his word. He is altogether lovely. And when we look upon him, our souls are blessed, our souls are fed. If we look at ourselves all the time or too much, and some people are like this, perhaps you're one of them, always introspective, always looking within, always thinking about me and my mistakes and my flaws, and I should do this, and I ought to do this, and I ought to stop doing that, and why am I like this? And if you look at at yourself like that too much, you will be crushed. You will be just overwhelmed because you'll see a lot of imperfection, amen? And I think it was uh, maybe Robert Murray McShane that said, For every look that you take at yourself, take ten at Christ. For every look that you look at yourself, look look at yourself. Don't be ignorant as to where you are and what your condition is. Take a look there, yes. But for every look at self, take ten at Jesus and look at him. And I think that's good counsel. Let's read this passage, Matthew 12, 46 through 50. As the Lord Jesus describes who his true family is and who his brothers and sisters are. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. So the Lord is teaching us in this portion that spiritual relationships are more binding and more eternal than even human relationships where Jesus is absent. In fact, Jesus said something like this uh, in another place. He said, a man's foes shall be those of his own household. Sometimes when one, perhaps it's a husband or wife or a parent, they come to Christ, they believe on Jesus, and all of a sudden their spouse, their children... Their siblings, perhaps their parents, uh, resent that and begin to oppose them. And a man finds antagonism in his own home because Christ is not loved by them as he's loved by this new believer now. So sometimes earthly families are, are close and sometimes they're not. But the family of God is really close. The spiritual ties that we have in Jesus will never end, beloved. In fact, have you ever heard anybody refer to the church as our forever family? Our forever family. Christ unites us to himself and to each other in such a way that that bond will never break. One time a rich man came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to enter into life? And Jesus said, "Uh, what does the law say? And Jesus took the law and revealed his sinfulness the right use of the law to show us our sin it's like a straight edge we hold our lives up beside God's straight edge and we realize we're bent and crooked misshapen the law reveals our sinful hearts and Jesus told him okay well here's let me just bottom line it for you you think you've kept all the commandments go sell everything you've got give it to the poor then follow me, and by that statement, Jesus put his finger on that man's problem. That man loved his money, and he loved his stuff, and he thought he kept all the commandments, and he was this great moral and righteous person, and really his God was money, and Jesus put his finger right on it by saying, let me just get right to the bottom line for you so you can understand it and be profited. You love your stuff. Go sell it and give every bit of it away, and then you're ready to follow me, and says he went away sad, and Peter says, Lord, we have left everything. To follow you, what shall we have? I like Peter. He wasn't afraid to ask questions. And that's the way you learn it, isn't it? You ask questions. And so he asks the question, what are we going to get? And Jesus says, if you've left father or mother or brothers or sisters or houses or lands for my sake, you will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. So Jesus says, Peter, if you've left your family, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, you're gonna get another kind of family, a hundred fold family. You're gonna get the church. You're gonna get fellow believers. I am related to brothers and sisters all around this world today. I had one brother in this world, and he is not, to use biblical language. He is no longer with us. I'm thankful that in Christ he was a spiritual brother as well, so I'll see him again. But though I had one earthly sibling, I have worldwide 10,000 siblings. In Christ, some of them I hadn't even met yet. We're going to have a family reunion one day. And I'll say, brother, is that you? I'm glad to finally meet you. Let's go to the throne a little closer. You won't do, Sister, I never had a sister. I'm glad I got a bunch of sisters now in Christ. So earthly ties are important. We're to honor our father and mother. Parents are to love and care for their children so forth. But Jesus here seems to put an emphasis on those spiritual ties, uh, the, the spiritual relationship between Jesus and believers is closer than the closest of blood ties. Now here's Mary and his brothers wanting to have a word with him. And we are told in Matthew 13, the end of the next chapter, his brothers were James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, four brothers and sisters, we're told, plural, so at least two sisters. And some in a misguided zeal to make Mary a perpetual virgin. Say, well, these were Jesus' cousins. James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and those girls, they were not really siblings. They were cousins. And then some have said, no, they weren't cousins. They were Joseph's children from a previous marriage. And they're taking those theories just with a misguided zeal, as I said, to somehow elevate Mary and keep her a perpetual virgin. But the plain sense of the scripture is this. Mary was a virgin when the Holy Spirit came upon her, and she conceived miraculously Jesus, and he was the firstborn. If Joseph had had children from a previous marriage, Jesus would not be the eldest son. There would be other sons older than him, and he would not be qualified To follow as David's descendant upon David's throne if he was not the firstborn son. So I don't want to elevate Mary, I want to elevate Jesus. The story of Mary is: Mary was a virgin when she conceived, and then after Jesus' birth, her and Joseph lived together as husband and wife, and they had children in the normal process: four boys and at least two girls, perhaps more girls. And we see in this passage as well: Mary had no special access to Jesus. Somebody said, your mother wants to speak to you. And he said, who is she? Here's my mother. Here's my brothers. Those who do the will of my father, this is my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Mary had no special access to Jesus. In fact, we ought to listen carefully to what Mary said. Mary said in Luke 1 my soul rejoices in God, my savior. Mary was a sinner who needed a savior. And she rejoiced that God was providing a Messiah and miraculously she would give birth to him and this would be her Savior. Mary knew she was a, in need of a Savior. And then Mary says in John chapter 2, verse 5, whatever Jesus says to you, do that. Whatever he says to you, do it. Mary was deflecting and giving glory to Jesus and say, listen to him, not me. And, and Scripture blesses Mary and gives her great credit and great honor but never elevates her to a co-mediator or an intercessor, or somehow we can't get to Jesus, but if we go to his mother, his mother will take us to Jesus, and Jesus will listen to his mother. That's superstitious nonsense. It's not biblical. And yet it's taught throughout this world to millions and millions of people, as many other errors are as well. So we must come back to the Scriptures and say, what does the Scriptures teach? We see here Mary has no special access to Jesus. His physical brothers have no privileged position in fact we're told that James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and the sisters it says they didn't even believe on Jesus John chapter 7 verse 5 so can you imagine try to try to fathom this Jesus the Messiah is your half-brother you have the same mothers but a different father and so they watched Jesus. They worked in the fields together. They worked in the home together. They ate together. They spent all of their upbringing together. And it says, none of his siblings, his half brothers and sisters, none of them believed on him. Now let that sink in. I've had, uh, by the way, I should add, until after the resurrection, then it changed. After his resurrection, then they realized he was right here among us. And we were blind. And after his resurrection, it says Mary and his brothers were there in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 with about 120 disciples waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit. So they became a believer later, but throughout his earthly life and throughout his ministry, unbelievers. Now here's what I want to say about that. I've heard people tell me if I had just been a better Christian, I could have led my siblings to the Lord. If I was a better witness, I wouldn't have unbelievers in my family. God would have used me to reach them, and somehow I have failed. I've been a halfway, an inconsistent, a poor witness so many times. That's why unbelievers are in my family. Well, question, was Jesus a bad witness? Did Jesus fail to represent the truth? Did he fail to show us Who God is and what righteousness is and what love is and what the truth is. There was the perfect witness of all witnesses right there in his home. And none of his siblings believed. So that kind of encourages me. And it reminds me that salvation is of the Lord. And the best witness possible can't pry the heart of man open unless God opens that heart. let's focus now on verse 50. Jesus, your mother and brothers need to speak with you a second. And he says, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretches out his hands to those around him, his disciples. And he says, behold, these are my mother. These are my brothers and sisters. For, he explains it lest we mistake it. We can't miss this. Four. verse 50. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. So the evidence of salvation is doing the will of the Father. This is what it means to be a brother or sister of Jesus. This is what it means to be in the family of God. To have the same Father that He has. What is the mark of salvation? It is doing the will of the Father in heaven. Which is another way of saying obeying God. Having a desire to do what God wants us to do. Now, we don't ever hit that perfectly, do we? Do you always do what God wants you to do all days and in every circumstance? Shake your head like this. No, we don't. None of us do. We don't hit it. But is there is there a desire in you? Do you want to? Is there a passion? Is there a burning, fervent, genuine desire? Even when nobody's looking... I want to honor my heavenly father for he has loved me and saved me. And I want to please him. I want to do his bidding. I want to do his will. This is the evidence of salvation. It is what Jesus did. When Jesus came into this world, he fulfilled Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will. O my God. Thy law is within my heart, Psalm 47 and 8. Jesus says, I've come to do your will, my Father. In John chapter 4, he's been talking with the woman at the well. The disciples come back from town. They say, here, Master, eat. We know you've got to be hungry. Eat this. And he says, I've been eating. But it's not food you can see. He says, my meat, my food, my nourishment is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He says, that's what nourishes me. That's what drives me. That's where my energy comes from. Not earthly food for my body, but doing the will of my Father. This is my bread and potatoes. This is my calories intake. This is my nourishment and energy and zeal and strength is to do the will of God. This was our Lord. I'm glad he never stumbled. Not one time. We stumble all the time. But our Master, our Lord, came to do the will of the Father, and he did it. John chapter 6, listen to what he said in John six thirty-seven through 40. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. About four times there, Jesus says, I came to do his will, and this is his will, and I've done his will, and his will is this. And if we would be in the family of God, it will be evidenced, there will be the fruit of a Genuine desire and a trajectory of our lives. It'll not be this way in rebellion against God and kicking against God and disobeying Him at every turn and calling for grace. Well, I can disobey God my whole life, but I'm under grace. Doesn't work that way. That's a twisting of grace. True grace leads us to holiness and leads us to obedience and leads us to desiring to please our God who has given us this grace. Grace is not a license to sin, grace is a motivation to obedience. Grace is never a license or an excuse to sin. It's always a motivation to obey. If God has done this for me in Christ, for my eternal well-being, then I desire to take this little feeble life of mine that's just going to last a few more days and months and weeks, a few more little measly years. I desire to take whatever time I have and somehow spend it for His name and for His glory until I go to see Him. Grace motivates us to obedience. Grace motivates us to do the will of the Father. Just as the Lord Jesus did. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sees this cup. And it's full of your sins and mine. And it's full of the anger and wrath of God against all that sin that we bring to the table. And Jesus says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but thy will be done. What is he doing? He's doing the will of the Father. Even as he faces the cross, as he nears the wrath of God falling on him as the sin bearer, his holy soul shrinks back at that for a moment. Father, is there any way? But no, there is no way. And not my will, but your will be done. And I will do it. And I will bear it. And I will drink it. Because it's the Father's will. Beloved, that's the question we ought to ask in everything. In every situation, here's the question to ask. What is the Father's will in this matter? Not, what do I want to do? I think I'd like to do this or that. Or, or, or we shouldn't ask, what's everybody else doing? Let me get a read of, the, of, the, of the, my peers. What are they doing? What's everybody else doing? Then I'll know what I should do. No. The question is, what will you have me to do, oh Father? And if you don't ask that question, there's a serious, serious spiritual issue at stake. Is your heart not inclined to obey the Father? It's a mark of salvation, isn't it? It's how you are truly in His family. We can truly say, Jesus is my elder brother. He obeyed the Father, and my desire is to obey Him as well. I want to be a brother and sister of Christ. With the same Father doing the same bidding of the Father. Don't get this wrong, beloved. If you get this out of order now, you'll have a false gospel. Listen to me carefully. It's very important that we not put the cart before the horse. The horse pulls the cart. Horse first, cart second. Don't get those backwards. The order is grace, period, and works afterwards. If you don't get that right, you'll be a, a sweaty, frustrated, striving real hard to please God and get his favor, thinking if I do hard, if I do enough, if I just do better, I'll make it to heaven one day. That's, that's a condemned system. That's wrong. It's a false gospel. It's all of grace. And let me say another thing instead of just the Horse and cart metaphor, let me say something so oh, it's so profound. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 comes before Ephesians 2.10. Isn't that deep? That's just so profound. What does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Do you see that? We bring nothing to the table except the sin that stinks to the high heavens. That's what we bring to the table. And God in Christ brings all the rescue to the table. He brings grace that is favor that he might rescue us. You say, what about the faith? And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even the faith that we need to lay hold of Jesus, God brings that in his grace. And he says, now here, believe on Jesus and here's the faith to do it. It's grace. Grace is illustrated in the New Testament in various metaphors like a birth. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How much effort do we put forth in our birth? What do I do to be born? How can I be born? In fact, Nicodemus said that. So, Lord, am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? I'm old. How can this be? And Jesus says, the wind blows where it wills. That's how it happens. It comes not from you doing something, Nicodemus. In fact, it's something you cannot do. It's the wind blowing as as the free agent of God, the third person of the triune God. The wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound, and you see the trees. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Birth is a work of God. It's not something we do. And then there's the metaphor of not only birth, but the metaphor of resurrection. Resurrection. How do we raise ourselves? Try real hard, grunt, get your teeth. You can do this. Raise yourself from the dead. No, beloved, that's the work of God. And you hath He quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Then there's the metaphor not only of birth and resurrection, there's the metaphor of, of a creation. Can we create ourselves? Let's create ourselves. Let's, let's, let's make our, we, we don't exist, and now we, we'll make ourselves impossible. All of these are unilateral works of God. They're, they're what theologians call monergistic works of God. It's not synergism where two people are working together toward a good end. I'm working, God's working, and we'll get salvation eventually. No, it's monergistic. We do nothing. We're dead. God works in grace. He gives us faith. He grants us repentance. And because of grace, now we're born, now we can live. We can smile, we can cry out, we can cling to a mama because we've been born. Birth is God's work, and now we begin to show the results of being born. Now eventually we'll walk, and we'll work, and we'll talk. It started with a birth that we had nothing to do with. The resurrection Lazarus come forth Lazarus is dead Jesus calls him from the dead and now Lazarus is loosed and he begins to walk and in the next chapter he's sitting with Jesus at the table communing with Jesus fellowshipping with Jesus Jesus raises him from the dead and then Lazarus sits with Jesus worships Jesus bears witness to Jesus and is hated by the religious leaders because of his identity with Jesus So don't get this out of order. Don't get it confused. Grace always comes first and in full measure in the person of Christ. Of his fullness have all we received in grace upon grace. John chapter 1. And if we have been born again, and if we have been created, and if we have been raised, we will do the will of the Father in heaven. It's the proof that we have become a miracle It's the works that come from a kind of tree. You'll know a tree by its fruit. So we're saved by grace alone, but grace that saves is never alone. We're saved by grace alone, but grace that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied, and it, it always issues in doing the will of the Father. So both of these truths are important. If you get either of those backwards, or if you emphasize one to the neglect of the other, you'll say, oh, it's just grace and nothing else. Well, where's your works? There is a place for works. And if it's just grace and you live any way you want to and call that grace, that's, that's a perversion of grace. Or if you say, well, I'm not really emphasizing grace. I'm just trying to be a better person. I'm living this way and doing these things and trying to improve myself. That's not salvation. That's moralism. That's good deeds. That's works. But don't put that ahead of grace. If you can save yourself, why did Jesus die? Why did the Holy Son of God have to bleed out His precious blood if you can do it yourself? Our sin was so grievous it took the most radical solution in the universe. The second person of the eternal triune God must come into this world and take a body so that His hands can be pierced and His feet can be pierced and His head crowned and His side opened up and He can spill forth His precious sinless blood, because our plight was that desperate and that terrible. It took that remedy. And you think you're going to fix yourself with a little Band-Aid and a little self-help course and a few positive attitudes, adjustments? No, beloved. Grace always comes first, and we magnify the grace of God, and we say, My sins in, were in God's book. He had them all recorded. And Jesus says, Father, I'll pay. And all the, crawl, all the curses and all the charges was placed on Jesus. And he bore it in his body on the cross. There's grace. Now, do you not want to do the will of a father who has done that for you? It's a mark of salvation, beloved. Grace first and then works. And so what do we do as the true family of Christ well when we pray we pray like this thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven we pray we want to do your will not our will your will be done even when we pray we want to do his will not ours when we come to Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 Paul has spent 11 chapters talking about the sweet mercies of God to the unworthy and undeserving and hellbound sinners of the world Jew and Gentile All are disqualified. All are condemned. And here's what God did in Christ. And whoever believes on him will be saved. And he gets to chapter 12 and he says, In light of those mercies, give your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You'll do the will of the Father. In heaven, in light of the mercies of God. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, Jesus said, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. There it is again, Matthew 7, 21. They had these boastful claims. We've cast out demons. We've done mighty works in your name. And Jesus says, you hadn't even done the Father's will. You're boasting in these great things and you've ignored the will of the Father. And he tells them in that Sermon on the Mount... Chapters 5, 6, and 7, the gist of what the Father's will is, it starts with the Beatitudes. You come broken, and you mourn over your sin, and God lets you in. And you hunger and thirst after righteousness, and you show mercy to others because you've received mercy. And you make peace, not trouble and contention because God has brought you into a relationship of peace with himself and so forth. We're told that this world is passing away and the lusts thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 John two seventeen, our memory verse in the bulletin. The one who does the will of God abides forever. It's the same thing we read in our text. My mother and my brothers and my sisters are those that do the will of the Father like I have done, the elder son, the only begotten son, and I have adopted brothers and sisters now they're adopted sons and and daughters and they now also do like I did they want to do the will of the father these are the true believers there are many places that we could look at paul says in 1st Thessalonians 5:18 in everything give thanks for this is the will of god in Christ Jesus concerning you are you grateful do you live a life of gratitude Do you spend deliberate time every morning, every noon day, every evening, every nighttime waking moment with a heart of gratitude to God? Or are you constantly discontented, murmuring, and complaining against God's providence? It's the will of God that you give thanks to Him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 It's the will of God that you abstain from sexual sin. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. It's God's will that you not go the path of this world in their many expressions of sexual sin. Peter says, it's the will of God that with well-doing you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. 1 Peter 2.15 You will be surrounded by a foolish world. God's will is that you do good in the midst of their foolishness so that they can see a difference, so that they can see what love and faith and purity looks like. It's the will of God that with well-doing you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. When Paul is on the road to Damascus to kill Christians, to arrest Christians, to do whatever he can to stop this new movement called Christianity, Jesus appears in glory And Paul falls and he asks two questions. The first one is, who are you? And to his amazement, the answer comes, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And that was a world-changing moment for Saul. He thought he was serving God. He thought he was doing the will of God. And he realized that he's been fighting against God. And Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Second question, he says... What would you have me do? What wilt thou have me to do? And that is the question, beloved, isn't it? That is the question. What is the Father's will? What would God have us to do? It may not be easy. Was it easy for Jesus to do the will of God? Sometimes we think, if I do God's will, He'll bless me and it'll be smooth and I won't have any enemies. Look at Jesus doing the will of God. Was it easy and was it smooth? The whole world was his enemy. And it was not easy. It cost him everything. And yet he was raised. And he is given a name above every name. And he is now exalted because he first humbled himself. Amen. What is the Father's will? This is my only concern if I'm thinking rightly. Well, let me read my horoscope and see what I should do today. Throw it in the news. I'll tell you what you should do. Throw it in the trash can. That's what you should do with it. Well, let me uh, break open this fortune cookie and see what should I expect this week. A cookie, that's it. Just eat it and throw the little scrap of paper in the trash can. It's worth nothing. Well, what is the question then? All I need to know and all I need to concern myself with and it makes life so simple and it 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 brings it right down to where i don't have to stress out about what everybody else will say or do or think what is the will of my father in heaven and how can i do that for his glory and this is who the true family of god is this is who the true family of god is let's pray Help us, our Father, to be careful in our reading, and our understanding, in our applications of Scripture. Help us to not get things out of order, nor abuse any precious doctrine, nor emphasize one to the neglect of another. And it's so easy to do any and all of these things. And so teach us, give us people that love us, that would speak lovingly to us and truly into our lives, that we might be teachable and that we might learn and listen and grow and, and sharpen one another. As iron sharpens iron, a man is sharpened by the countenance of his friends, by the influence of brothers and sisters in this forever family. Thank you for a church where we can walk together in life and through troubles and, and through, through victories as well. May we be more involved and not less, more committed and not less, investing more in this place that you've sovereignly and providentially put us and not less. Help us, O Lord. I pray for these, my brothers and sisters, and what a privilege it is to say that. Brothers and sisters of Jesus, give us a heart to do your will. And Lord, when we blow it big time, when we fail miserably, help us to know that it is your will at that point that we confess our sins. That is your will. That is how we show ourselves to be a Christian. Not that we hit it, the bullseye every time, but when we totally miss the target, then the will of the Father is to humble ourselves and repent. And this is how we show ourselves to be born of the Spirit. Continuously, humbly, bowing before you in honest confession. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.